All right, I'm going to read to us just a few verses from Isaiah chapter 2 as I begin, and then we will circle back to these verses at the end. I want to put these in front of us from the outset because I want this to be our vision as we talk about what we're going to talk about tonight. And this is consistent. What the prophet says here is consistent with a lot of what we just sang, with these declarations about who God is and about... Um, the impossibility of our own ways and the ways of the world overcoming who he is and what he intends to do. So this is Isaiah's vision of what is coming in God's future. He says, in days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction in the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between nations and he shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore." One of the hardest things I've found about being a parent is uh, how to deal with those moments when uh, we try to shepherd our kids toward what is good or what is wise, sometimes what is safe, and uh, despite the fact that it's clear we know what we're talking about and they don't, uh, they don't take that advice. And the bad news for those of you who are parents of, of littles is that that dynamic only gets harder (laughs) as they get older. Uh, I try not to be the guy that has a lot of bad news for people about parenting as kids grow up, and and the truth is it only gets better in hundreds and hundreds of ways. Um, But with the better, as is true with most most things in life, with the better comes some hard stuff, and, and that stuff is hard. And so I found that to be true for me as a parent, and it causes me to reflect on what I was like as a kid and how that was true for my parents, and in my case, um, though I was generally one of the good kids, uh, that occasionally someone will say something to me about somebody else uh, that, oh, he's a pretty good kid, you know? And I just say, man, if you ever use that to sell me on someone wanting to date one of my children, um, it's over, because I was one of the good kids. <clears throat> and uh, anyway, um, but when I was little, um, my dad, I, I can remember some specific cases where my dad cautioned me against doing things that I was pretty set on doing once I was going to jump off the side of a treehouse down to a lower branch, catch the branch, and then swing to the ground. And he assured me that branch can't hold you. And I was little, and I was light, and I was like, watch. Uh, and he let me, he let me do it. <laughs> um, and he was right. Uh, and I have lots of stories like that, telling him, I'm going to ride the skateboard down this hill. And the, the, the dynamic there was, I didn't own that skateboard because I didn't know how to skateboard. And he's like, that's a hill. You don't know what happens when you start riding a skateboard down a hill. Again, he let me do it. I'm making it sound like I had a pretty neglectful father, and that's not the case. But um, I have scars on the outside of both knees from that particular incident to prove that he was right. I remember certainly times where he out and out forbid me Uh, forbade me to do things, rules that I broke on purpose, willfully, 
and remembering seeing the disappointment in his face when those things were happening. I remember in high school beginning to date a girl and getting uh, these gentle, but I was old enough to understand cautions that this might not be the best decision you've ever made. Um, And then having my heart broken. And uh, the thing about all of that with my dad is that when I had my heart broken at 16 years old, uh, I sat on the couch and cried with him. And he never said, hey, remember how I told you? (laughs) Maybe not this girl. Um, And to this day, I am confident that there are decisions that I make and things that I do that somewhere in my dad's mind, he's going, probably not the best thing. And And I'm old enough now that hopefully the scales are starting to even a little bit on who's right when we have those situations. But I also know for sure that whatever I do, I can always go home. And that he is always looking for me and looking out for me. And I say all that to say that I want us to see how God is in the world. I talked last week, and I'll I'll refresh us on that in just a minute, about who God is and, and kind of what he's like, some characteristics of God. Tonight, before we start moving into, as we talk about what we believe, before we start moving into talking about Jesus, I want to talk a little bit about where God is and how God is with us here in the world. Last week, I closed by reading you this passage out of Colossians 1 and said, this is kind of, this was Paul's prayer for the Colossian church, and this is kind of my prayer for us as, as we go through this series about what we believe as followers of Jesus. And Paul says, we haven't stopped praying for you, asking God, and here are the two phrases I want us to remember as we move forward, asking God to give you wise minds and spirits attuned to his will and so acquire a thorough understanding of the ways in which God works. And then he says, we pray that you'll live well for the master, and then further down says, as you learn more and more how God works, you will learn how to do your work. And then he says, we pray that you'll have the strength to stick it out over the long haul, strength that endures the unendurable and spills over into joy, thanking the Father who makes us strong enough to take part in everything bright and beautiful that he has for us. And that's the goal. That's the goal of this series. That's certainly the goal of our lives and the goal for us as a church. Uh, But it's the goal for what we're doing as we talk through what it means when the scriptures tell us in Jude that we're meant to be people who contend for the faith that was handed down once and for all, the faith that was once and for all given to God's people. What is that faith? What do we really believe? How are we marked? How are we distinct? How are we different? And we started last week after talking about some questions that we all sort of experience as people. We started last week by talking about who is God, and I had these 10 things. I got in trouble with Buck because they were all God is statements until the very last one. Um, And I didn't, didn't like God is knowable, so I changed it to God can be known. But if your brain needs to change that to God is knowable, along with Buck, you can do that. Last week, we kind of looked at this in list form, like what, here, what are some things that we can identify about what God is like? Tonight, I want us to kind of look at a story. Up to the point of Jesus arriving, what has God been like? How has God functioned in the world? Because 
when we see a list like this and we see all these amazing things that we claim to be true about God and then we look around at our lives and we look around at the world around us, it's very, very natural to say, if God is all of these things, then where is he? Because the evidence that I would want to see of a God who is like that, who is active in the world, sometimes seems a little thin. It sometimes seems that the God who is just is not bringing justice swiftly enough. That the God who is love is watching while the world picks itself apart with a lack of love. And it's no secret, we all know sort of, I'm not trying to build drama about what we believe. We all sort of know that the answer to this question about where is he is going to culminate in a lot of what we believe about Jesus. But before we get to Jesus, I think it's important to have just a basic understanding of what's happening with God and our world before Jesus arrives on the scene because Jesus isn't born into a vacuum. There isn't one story about God and then Jesus arrives and we have a new story in which the old story is irrelevant. That's not how it works. That's not the identity, the nature of Jesus or what he's done. It is not irrelevant to what God was doing before Jesus came. In fact, it's extremely relevant for us to understand how God has been seeing the world and acting in the world even before Jesus arrived. It started with God speaking humanity into being, with giving people all that they need, including agency. He gave humans agency. He gave them the freedom that living beings made in the image of God have to choose what they do, where they go, how they live, who they follow, who they worship. And through that agency came this crack of sin and brokenness that emerged and grew within the creation. And all of that matters. It matters that we understand kind of the unfolding of that because it's our story. God is already there in that part of the story. He's already present. He's already working in the midst of it. So here's the big sort of idea that I want to send us out with today, and then I'm going to kind of tell some of the story behind this idea uh, and then circle back to Isaiah 2. But the main thing I want to say today about the nature of the faith, which was handed down once and for all, which was once and for all given for us as God's people, the big thing I want to say about that is this. From the start, God has been working from within the world to heal the world. Jesus arrives after we failed again and again to receive that, to receive this grace of God working from among his people to heal the world. But God will not be stopped in that. And I want us to understand that that's true about God. We are people who are confident that the arrival of Jesus is not the beginning of God's goodness. It's the culmination of his goodness and love expressed to generation upon generation as he worked from within the creation to break that cycle of sin and of wandering and of brokenness and of death. So here's kind of how that's unfolded. And, and, and the story of this, I got just a little picture of this last night. We, my whole family has been out of town this weekend. I'm the only one who's back so far. Um, but the Slagles kindly took 
uh, our little dog, Johnny Cash, who you've heard me talk about before, for a couple of days from us. And when I went to pick him up last night, uh, he did a thing that normally he only does for women, uh, which is kind of howl when he's happy. He gets so excited to see women come to the door. Um, that, and there are certain women that happens with consistently more than others. I won't name any names, but, um, but he, he gets excited and he lets out noises that sound like they're coming out of a gremlin or something. And so that happened for me when I arrived to pick him up after being gone for two days. I'm confident it's not because he was having a terrible time. He slept nonstop since he got home, which he doesn't do. So I think he had a lot of fun, uh, at the Slagle's house. Uh, but he did that because he was so excited to see me because I think in a dog's mind, when you hand them off to somebody else for two days, you're gone. You've abandoned them. And now I'm trying to adjust to, I guess this is my new family. Uh, let me see what I think. And so when I show back up, it's like, oh, I haven't been forgotten. I don't normally get that reaction from him. Uh, I normally get the least amount of excited, excitement among the five members of my family. And, but I got that. But... 30 seconds later, I set him down, and Astrid can tell you the first thing he did was run to her front door and start sniffing at her front door, and then they have a window that runs all the way to the floor next to their door and looking out the window for the other four members of my family, because <clears throat> that wasn't enough. It wasn't good enough that me, who, who uh, uh, on, if we're honest, does most of the care for him, despite my feelings about all of that and remembers that he has to eat and things like that, um, wasn't enough that I was there. That was awesome for about 30 seconds. And then he's off to the window. And this is the story. This is the story of God creating people, God being with his people, making them a people, giving them everything they need, and then resp responding almost always initially with, yes, this is all we've ever wanted. This is all we've ever needed. And then 30 seconds sniffing at the door and looking out the window for what else? Wait, 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 what else is there? Who else might be coming? Is there something more? This is what unfolds again and again and again. So God creates, he makes people, and soon in Genesis chapter 11, we discover that because people at that time are speaking all the same language, uh, they have already moved out of the phase of sort of howling at God's goodness, and they have moved into the phase of, we're pretty amazing, let's see what we can do together. So they build a tower that is going to reach into heaven, that is going to show all the people around how amazing they are, and God sees the idolatry growing among them. So this is when he confuses their language. This is why Babylon is called Babel, because they begin to speak different languages, and they don't understand each other. So God is already acting to save them in ways that they, I'm sure, receive as something other than salvation, but he's trying to put a stop to their idolatry. And out of that moment comes chaos because the order that they had established for themselves has been upset, and so there's chaos. And what comes when we disobey God, when we wander into our own ways, has come for them. And I don't have this passage on the screen, but I just want to read to you what God does next. He goes to Abram, who becomes Abraham, and he calls Abram and tells him this, Abram, get up and go. Leave your country, leave your relatives and your father's home and travel to the land I will show you. Don't worry, I'll guide you there. I have plans to make a great people from your descendants and I am going to put a special blessing on you and cause your reputation to grow so you will become a blessing and example to others. 
I will also bless those who bless you and further you in your journey, and I'll trip up those who, trip you, who try to trip you along the way. Through your descendants, this is the promise that God gives Abram, through your descendants, all of the families of the earth will find their blessing in you. So God comes into this situation, though he has created, given people everything they need, they have gone their own way, they've decided to build their own sort of way into heaven, almost literally, and to show everyone how great they are, God comes in, puts, flattens that out, and, and then says, but I'm gonna make a way. My intention is still to bless all the peoples of the earth. So he finds Abram, he calls Abram, says, go on this journey, go do this thing, follow me, and you're gonna be, I mean, we have songs about it, right? You're gonna be Father Abraham, the father of many nations, and all the families, all the tribes of the earth will be blessed through you. God is acting already within the creation to rescue and redeem. But almost immediately, if you keep reading in Genesis, almost immediately, Abraham lies to get himself out of a situation that he doesn't want to be in. He starts going his own way, and God's work to, to act within the creation to rescue and redeem people is undone by the one through whom he's trying to act. And this story just keeps repeating itself. Abraham's grandson, Jacob, comes along and he decides with his mother's help to take hold of God's blessings. This is what we do. This is, if you can't see yourself in some of these stories, uh, you're not looking very hard. But what Jacob is after is the blessings that God has established get handed down from the father, usually to the firstborn son, and Jacob has decided, I want those blessings for myself. So he and his mom cook up a plan to lie to his father Isaac, to cheat his brother Esau out of the blessing, and that sets off a tale of anger and betrayal and violence and multiple wives and all kinds of stuff that would make the writers of Game of Thrones wish that they could duplicate what happens in the wake. I've never seen Game of Thrones, um, but it sounds a lot like what happens in Genesis. Then we have Joseph, and Joseph is, starts out as the underdog in his story. He's um, sold by his brothers as a slave to the Egyptians. God works to deliver his people who are suffering from famine and Egyptian power by impossibly taking Joseph from slave in Egypt to one of the most powerful people in all of the land. And the rescue of God's people is set in motion in that bizarre way. And somehow, despite being rescued in that way, that crazy way that can be blamed on no one but God, somehow, uh, within a generation or so of Joseph's death, those people turn that rescue into this ending. We're all slaves in Egypt now. That's what's done with the rescue there. Then they realize, as they're prone to do, the insanity of their ways, and they cry out to God, and God hears them. And because of their sin and rebellion, uh, even in their sin and rebellion, because God is still the same, he's ready to, again, work from within them, work from within his creation to redeem. And he promises, I'm not only going to free you from your slavery, but I'm going to return you to the land 
that is your homeland. And their desire for that homeland is not altogether the same as if we got taken out of our homes and, and put into slavery in another land. Yes, we would want to be free from slavery. And yes, we would want to go home. But they had a special kind of understanding and attachment to their homeland. And their desire to go back to their homeland showed that they were still made in the image of God, that they still had a memory of God working within them and blessing them because their homeland was where God was. It was where the blessing started. And so their desire to return was also sort of symbolic of a, di- a desire to return to that kind of connection with God. And so God is alive and at work in the world. And, and they see that and they want to go home because they want to go home, but they also want to return to where God began his work with them. So that's where we get Moses. Moses comes in to lead them back to their homeland. And God says this to Moses, go and assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And I want us to see these words because I want us to remember that the story is continuing. It's It's not multiple stories broken up into multiple rebellions that have nothing to do with each other. But we're many generations into rebellion, rescue, rebellion, rescue at this point. And God says, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, Moses, saying, I have given heed to you and to what has been done to you in Egypt. I declare that I will bring you up out of the misery of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And all of it happened the way God promised. They followed Moses. They were freed from slavery. Um, And the promises that God made to Abraham show up here. He makes good again on these promises. And the promise that he makes through Moses, he makes good on. The Egyptians are judged for their own cruelty and rebellion. And God's people, now again ready to receive his grace, found themselves rescued and led back home. And the Jewish Passover remembers these events. And that matters too, because what happens when Jesus arrives is not irrelevant to the celebration of Passover. It's not disconnected from these events or the memory of God's people of these events. It's all deeply interconnected. So the people here are rescued, they return to their homeland, but it doesn't go much differently. Soon we see a cycle of invaders and conquerors coming in and ruling him in their own land, which is its own sort of torture because we're home and yet we're not free, even to worship God a lot of that time. Um, And then God sets them free again. And all of that chaos, um, I'm almost done taking you through all these sad stories, (laughs) but all of that chaos causes them to make a decision and say, if we were just a stronger people, like all these nations who conquer us, then we would be secure. So what we need is a king. And, and God says, hi, you have me. And they say, no, a real king. <laughs> no, we want a real king. Um, like someone who will bring us change we can believe in or give us the audacity of hope or someone who will make Israel great again. We want a real king. Because our faith that the right 
inspirational and strong leader can get us what we really want is fascinatingly resilient. So God gives them what they ask for. And they first get Saul, and that's kind of a disaster. But then they get David. And they think they've kind of hacked the system when they get David. Because they think they've got the best of God's ways, because the Bible says that David is a man after God's heart. So they have a godly man. And they've got the best of that and the best of the ways of the world because David is a strong leader. He is somebody who can get the right things done. So they just think, uh, if we could just get the best of what God says he'll give us and the best of what our wisdom says will give us what we need, we'll have it all taken care of. Does that sound familiar? Because we're still living this story. But the thing about David and the thing about our leaders that we keep trying to get the best of both worlds with is David had agency too. And as it turned out, David also wasn't God. <laughs> and so at some point, he follows his own desires. And what starts as this great story of a king who loved God and a kingdom ruled by a godly man becomes David running from his son who's trying to kill him. And that's how that story goes. And the, the kingdom is divided. God's people are driven out of their homeland again, and generations of suffering and deficit, devastation follow soon behind that. But again, God sees, and God works, and God rescues, and they're allowed to return home. They even rebuild the temple, which is another sign of their deep longing to return to God and be in his presence, because that's what the temple was, was the place that God dwelled among them. And that time when that happened, the psalmist describes this way, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for, for them. I just want to say, as you hear all of that, if there's part of you that recognizes yourself in the story, and like I said, we we probably all should, if there are part, there's part of you that recognizes us as a people, as a local church, as the church universal, as a nation, whatever the word us evokes for you, if there's part of, of, part of all of this that recognizes us as a people in this story, if there's part of you that kind of leaps inside when you, you hear this psalm and you imagine a day when we can say this full-throated without all the buts of understanding the world around us. It's because this is our story. This is our story. The failure of it and the beauty of it. This dream is the dream that was put in us when God made us in his image. It's the dream that he put back in his people every time he stepped in to rescue them and redeem them. So if you're bored with a little history today, I'm begging you to have eyes to see beyond your own immediate concerns and have ears to hear that the story of God's work to rescue you and me and us and the world is a long one. It didn't start when you were born. It didn't start when you sinned. It didn't start when you first decided to follow Jesus. It started a long time before that. And understanding your place in this story is crucial to understanding why God created you and to truly taking hold of his rescue for you and for us and for the world. But this is the story. 
It's a story of God's creation. It's a story of God's goodness. And it's a story that takes a turn when it also becomes about humanity's brokenness and about our fickleness of heart. But the turn that it takes never, ever upends God's nature. It never changes his steadiness. It never alters his goodness. He doesn't decide because of the way that we act that he's going to love us less or be any less persistent in coming after us. And people in this story keep circling back to that realization that they can't do this on their own, that they need God to come and rescue them and make everything right in the world. And God, again and again, in his way, says yes. And he knows even how this long, frustrating cycle of rebellion and rescue will end from the start. He knows how it will end. He's not playing cat and mouse with people and he's as relentless, this is an interesting dynamic of the story, is he keeps telling them. He's as relentless in telling them, this is my intention, this is where the story is going, as he is in trying to pull them back into the story. He keeps revealing who he is and what he's gonna do. And so somewhere in the middle of all that comes this vision that we got in Isaiah 2. And I've I, there's a, the poetry nerd in me hates formatting it out of the poetic form, but I want to get it all on one screen for us here. But we get this vision in Isaiah that says, in the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. I want to say just a couple of quick things and I'm done. Um, I always forget until the day of that one of the worst Sundays of the year to preach is Daylight Saving Sunday because you all think it's an hour later than it is in your internal clocks. <clears throat> Two things I want you to notice here before I stop. The grand sweep of this vision is the first thing I want us to see. The hope, the sort of relentless hope of it. The fact that all of that grandness and all of that hope is tied up in the presence of God among us. Not in the victories that we win along the way, not in the prosperity that we gather as humans. And that ought to point us to how we spend our lives and what we consider valuable and, and where our time and energy goes because this is the end of the story. And it has nothing to do with what we can accumulate or accomplish along the way. It has to do with seeing what the kingdom of God is like and living according to that. That's the first thing I want you to see. The second thing I want you to see is that how is God named here? How is he described in this story? He's described as the God of Jacob. The God who will come and be among us, who will make this vision true, is the God of Jacob. Jacob, who was a second born, not destined for his father's blessing, who was so eager for what 
he could get for himself that he cheated his brother and deceived his father. And that's just part of Jacob's spotty resume. But God loved Jacob and God redeemed Jacob. And the scriptures tell us, if you go kind of follow Jacob's story through to the end, the the scriptures tell us he was Joseph's father. And so Joseph is in Egypt, like I talked about, that at the end of his life, he's still living in Egypt with Joseph. and, and, And though they're in Egypt, God has done quite a bit of rescue of his people at that point, but he doesn't want to die and be buried in Egypt. And so he says to his son, to Joseph, take me back home. I want to go back where God made his promise to us. I believe he will keep it. I want to be buried in in the land of our fathers. Literally, I want to be buried on Abraham's property is what he says. That's the message at the end of Jacob's life. And when that happened, when he died, not only did Jacob's family go with him and take him back home, but this is a fascinating little piece of the scriptures. The scriptures say that the servants of Pharaoh, that the elders of Egypt accompanied him, his body there and wept because Jacob had died. So two things I want you to see here. The first is the bigness of this vision. And the second is that the God who does this is the God of Jacob who deceived and lied and ran and then was redeemed. And God is revealed in Jacob's story. It's a story of grace, a story of rescue, despite Jacob's sin and wandering. And it's a story where people from every tribe and place are drawn in because of God's covenant, because of of Jacob's rescue. In the house of the God of Jacob, Isaiah tells us, God will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. He will settle the divides of humanity. That's the vision. He will quiet the hateful hearts of political enemies. He will end the violence between nations. So because this is coming, Isaiah says, next thing he says is this, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is how the story ends. So come and be part of the story. And this all points us to where we're going in the series, which is talking about Jesus in the coming weeks. But again, before we get into the details of that, I think it's important for us to know the story, even in a very abbreviated way, which was certainly what this was. Know the story that gets us to Jesus because it reveals something crucial to us that we have to cling to in order to understand Jesus correctly and in order to receive and follow him correctly. And it's this, again, from the start, God has been working from within the world to heal the world. It's who he is. Jesus comes after we failed again and again to receive his gifts of grace. But Jesus comes because God will not be stopped. Let's pray.